You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast. That'll show wrap up our Mavericks talk. Thank you again to Tim Cato for coming on story. earlier this week. And to Jared Lee for talking to you about this last week. Be sure to catch both of those great episodes if you haven't already. We have two more interviews coming your way the Bucks and the Mavericks. the as the regular season is winding down, and we continue turning down the rest of the team in the now, league. Your host, Hope you enjoy them, Lauren and Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. We are back. This is Aaron Fishman. It's the On the NBA Beat podcast, and we'll be talking about the Indiana Pacers and the Dallas Mavericks. Following up on our last two interview episodes, we talked to Jared Wade, who spoke about the Indiana Pacers last week. And then earlier this week, Tim Cato discussed the Dallas Mavericks. Both of those teams are fighting to get into the playoffs. It's a little dicier for the Dallas Mavericks, whom we'll discuss in the second segment. But the Indiana Pacers are at an interesting point in the season. As of recording time, they're two and a half games out of the sixth seed. Maybe a tall task to jump up to that point. But they're also two and a half games ahead of the ninth seed. Looks like they're likely locked in the seventh or eighth seed. And if they are, they're going to be facing the Cleveland Cavaliers or the Toronto Raptors in the first round. They still play each of those teams once more in the regular season. They've played the Cavaliers really close this season, although they have lost all three games to date. Lauren, how do you think that the Pacers match up with either of those teams right now if they end up having to play? As you said, I think there is a good chance that they play one of those two teams in the first round with only 11 games left and two and a half games separating them from six and two games separating them from ninth. I don't think they're moving out of 7th or 8th, although they do have a little bit of an easy schedule coming up. They face the Nets twice, the Sixers, and the Knicks twice. So as you mentioned, they've played Cleveland very closely, despite being 0-3 against them in the season series. All the losses were very close. One of them was in OT even, so that's an exciting thing to keep an eye on. Against Toronto in the season series, they're one and two. So both of those series in the playoffs, I think, could be more exciting than your typical 1-8 or 2-7 series. Because for both Cleveland and Toronto, it'll be hard for them to contain both Monte Ellis and Paul George at the same time. Since neither of those teams have two really strong wing defenders, especially if Toronto doesn't get Damari Carroll back at full strength before the playoffs. Cleveland, you expect them to put LeBron James on Paul George probably, but then it leaves Monte Ellis open to go off like he did in their last meeting against each other. Monte Ellis scored 28 points. So it's an interesting matchup for the Pacers. They've played both those teams close so far in the season, so hopefully that'll last until the playoffs. Now their best player is Paul George, a strong two-way player. He got injured two off-seasons ago. It was that gruesome broken tibia incurred after he ran into the basketball stanchion just a brutal injury but he worked very hard and he came out of the gate strong this season he uh, was shooting the lights out in November it was pretty remarkable attempting more than seven and a half three-pointers per game and hitting 49 percent of those a guy who is attempting 20 shots per game was still hitting 48 percent from the field He was so efficient. He was doing really well on the defensive end as well. 
And it just wasn't sustainable. Can you talk about that a little bit, but also how well he's still doing this season, even if he hasn't been able to live up to those standards? Yeah, as you mentioned, it was really remarkable seeing him come out of the gates after missing almost an entire season because of that gruesome tibia injury and shooting the lights out, essentially 50% from three. People always say that it's better to have a clean bone break rather than anything to do with ligaments or structural stuff in your knee, but you always wonder how a player is going to come back after missing an entire season, essentially, other than some games at the end of last season, because there are questions about conditioning, there are questions about if the athleticism is still going to be there, but Paul George put to rest all of those questions early on in the season after his great November. And yes, he has fallen off a little bit since then, because I don't think you expect a player, especially a player taking 20 shots per game to keep up those numbers. But it's still an amazing season. Jared Wade called him in the early season, possibly the second best player in the NBA. I don't think that's an exaggeration. People were including him in the Dark Horse MVP talks then. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I I think a lot of people early on were talking about LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George. So not exactly a bad group to be included in. Just goes to show how impressive he's been. A supporting player on that team, CJ Miles, also started the season very strong, but tailed off quickly after the calendar year ended. He was hitting nearly 44% from three and scoring 15.9 points per game in November. Also a strong December, but he's really tailed off. Can you just tell us a little bit, Lauren, about the differences for the Pacers when he's hitting his shots and when he is? Well, there's marked difference in points per game for CJ Miles in the Pacers' wins and losses. A lot of that can be attributed to his performance in the early season versus the later season. Again, like a lot of Pacers on this team, actually, George Hill has similar splits from November and December. We already talked about Paul George falling off. November, December is where they got a lot of their wins this season also. So it's natural to see some differences in level of play for win-losses. For CJ Miles specifically, I'll defer to Jared Wade's knowledge on this issue. A lot in the earlier season, Frank Vogel was experimenting with lineups, especially putting CJ Miles at the four. So I think it was an experiment that could have led to some of his hotter shooting with defenders at the four not really being used to chasing a guy like CJ Miles around the perimeter, around screens. So it would lead to him getting some open shots. They've gone away from that a little bit recently, especially with the increased integration of Miles Turner into their lineup. Also, probably the defenders have gotten more used to or more expecting those kinds of looks from the Pacers. So that's a little bit of an explanation of the drop-off for CJ Miles shooting, especially between wins and losses. I think it's natural you wouldn't expect a guy like him to keep up those outrageous numbers, but I think he's also been a little bit worse in February and March than his true ability also. Yeah, you need a guy, if you're the Indiana Pacers, like him to be solid. You don't need him to shoot 44%, but you also can't have him shooting in the 20s from three-point range. It's harder when you're talking about it out loud to paint the statistical picture 
but it's kind of interesting if you if you visualize it kind of like a graph he just went straight down progressively from november through january and now he's been able to increase it he's obviously not making the impact he was now in february and march as he was early in the season because his minutes are down and he's not attempting as many threes but at least the percentage is back up there but just to take a couple months 43.7% from three point range in november all the way down to 21.6% in january i mean even if you're under a third of your threes that's just flat out miserable and he was hitting less than 22% of his threes in january while still taking nearly five a game and so that just doesn't get it done one thing that's also interesting about him is how quirky his style is he's a lefty who has a really strange release it's a really high release too and I mean that shouldn't really affect his consistency he's been playing that way his whole life as far as I know but it does create interesting concerns for defenders who aren't used to it and so I think there's also a possibility that they may have adjusted on him slightly but it's also clearly just a, a case of him getting cold don't you think yeah, I think all those points are correct. It is a bit of defenders adjusting, getting more used to how to play him. But also, as you said, those early season numbers are probably not sustainable. 44% on high volume from CJ Miles. Yeah, we could have called the episode with Jared Wade or even this one Miles of Miles because we, we have a lot of miles in the discussion. But now we'll go to the other one, Miles Turner. He just turned 20 right before this recording, in his rookie season, sprained his thumb and was out for a month and a half from early November to late December. But he's come onto the scene really fast. And he has a lot of strengths that I, I think will be a tremendous asset for the Indiana Pacers moving forward. What do you see in him? I think he's a good fit for the Pacers. I don't think anyone expected Miles Turner to come onto the scene so strong so early in his career. People thought he would be more of a project. He was a little raw coming out of the draft, but he's shown a lot of energy. He's filling a need for the Pacers who early season didn't really have a strong traditional power forward. They were using Paul George and CJ Miles, as we talked about earlier, in that role. So he gives a lot of energy. He's good out of the high post, and he can hit mid-range jumpers and grab rebounds to an extent for a rookie. He's just adding to this great rookie class that we've seen this season with a lot of strong players coming out of it. Yep. We'll see how he does. The Pacers really need him, and, and they need consistency all across the roster if they want to head into the postseason strong or even make the postseason. We'll be right back with our other recent interview team, the Dallas Mavericks on the NBA beat.
welcome back to the second segment of this banter episode. Earlier this week, we talked to Tim Cato from Mavs Moneyball about the Dallas Mavericks and their tight playoff race. The Mavericks have exceeded a lot of expectations. There were a lot of question marks about the team coming into the season, and some experts were saying that maybe they should consider tanking because they didn't really expect the Mavericks to have a chance to contend for the playoffs. But Tim Cato disagreed with that. On our show, he had the quote, You just can't tank with Dirk on the roster. You just can't do it. You owe it to him to try to put the best team around him. Aaron, do you agree with that sentiment? Do you think the Mavs owe it to Dirk to go for it every year, especially as his career is waning? That's a tough one. I I really, I'd like to think that they do. But I think the reality of the situation is that it's a business. There really is no loyalty. The bottom line, that's the most important thing, the money. Whatever gets a team to uh, being able to perform and be at a playoff and championship level the quickest is what's going to happen in the vast majority of cases. There are exceptions where a player is celebrated as the team is not trying to build something around them special. But in this case, I don't think that the Mavericks spurned tanking just to honor Dirk Nowitzki and try to get him into the playoffs one more time. I think that it's not a black and white decision to tank or not to tank. Right. So they had Wesley Matthews, who was returning from injury. They could have rested him, but it's not hurting his progression to play him on the court. In fact, it may be helping him to be out there. As Tim talked about, just needs to get back in game shape and get more games under his belt. So if they sat him, played a younger guy or something, maybe they wouldn't have had as many wins. But it's not like it would have benefited the trajectory of, of their franchise. And the same thing with signing Darren Williams. I think that they like him being there. And it's not like they have him for one year just to prop up their win total. So I don't think that they blatantly decided not to tank and, and mortgage their future just so that Dirk could get to the playoffs again. Yeah, that's a great point. There were a lot of question marks coming into the season As you mentioned, Wesley Matthews, how he would come back from his injury. It seemed like he came back very quickly from his injury, but while his shooting hasn't especially been there, he's been playing well for them. Chandler Parsons was also dealing with a nagging injury from last season. You never know which version of Darren Williams you're going to get, but all those things seem to work out for the Mavs. Another thing to remember is that the Mavs owe their first-round draft pick to the Celtics, this offseason unless it's in the top seven spots I don't think with all those things I mentioned going right for the Mavs I don't think there was a chance that they could be bad enough to get themselves into the top seven because then in that case you have to be worse than teams like the Magic or the Kings or the Pelicans that's a large drop off from where they are now I want to add just I think that that's a great point that you also brought up the Parsons injury because he was recovering from a knee injury. Now he's injured his knee in a different way with the torn meniscus just in in recent days. But that is another thing that I think if if you're the Mavericks, you also you don't know what you're going to get with Parsons at the start of the year. And to some extent, they may have been surprised that he's been able to be so productive this season. It was a little bit of a rough start. They eased him into the season and increased his minutes progressively. But 
again, when you have a guy like that, who's such an important part of your team, that could result in a lot more losses. So I don't think that they necessarily decided not to tank. They just, they played the hand that was dealt to them, but they didn't go out of their way to tank. Let's just put it like that. They didn't go the Sam Hinkie 76ers route. This situation is parallel to another situation around the league with an aging superstar who's been with one team his entire career, Kobe Bryant and the Lakers. The Lakers, unlike the Mavs, have seemed to be very bad this season in Kobe Bryant's farewell tour. What's the difference in situation there between the Lakers and the Mavs? (laughs) I'm going to say that the Lakers actually haven't tried to tank. This may be an unpopular viewpoint. But I think with certain signings, you can see it, that they really were trying to get Kobe Bryant to the playoffs. And so that may contradict what I said earlier a little bit, that the vast majority of the time a franchise doesn't worry about its star, legendary player, and that guy's last season. They're just worrying about the future of the franchise. But when they signed Lou Williams, I think that was a clear indicator, reigning sixth man of the year, that they really do want some talent on this roster. And they're not just going for broke, going for the number one pick. I think they wanted to be better, and they just weren't. And as the season has progressed, when it was very obvious that they were terrible two months in, whenever it was, then they just bought into the tanking. They played the young guys a lot more than they were. And then they were more about building the future. But Mitch Kupchak has readily admitted publicly that obviously while they're still trying to build the future and invest in young promising players, guys like Clarkson and D'Angelo Russell and and Julius Randle, the season is all about Kobe Bryant. It's really been all about the farewell tour. So I don't know. I don't think they tried to tank at first. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with you. But I also think that it's also because the Lakers in their current rebuilding process after the Kobe era, are in a very different position than the Mavericks. As you mentioned, the key guys for the Lakers, Clarkson, Russell, and Randall. Clarkson's a little bit farther along in his progression, but Randall and Russell, giving them heavy minutes, although they're fine players, it might result in a few losses in the early stages. Whereas the Mavs are clearly building around for their new core Chandler Parsons and Wesley Matthews who are already established players who are entering their prime right now so it's a little bit different to consider I think yeah I I just want to just butt in for a second and just add that first of all you're exactly right the makeup of their roster it incentivizes tanking more because they just don't have the quality of players that the Mavericks have and like you said maybe they do have the quality it's just where they are in their careers they're so young they're not as experienced they're not ready to be winners in this league all those guys that they have whereas the Mavericks have guys even like Parsons and Wesley Matthews who have been on playoff teams who know how to get it done alongside the aging star Nowitzki but I think also the Lakers have done it out of necessity in a way they did kind of like what I said about the Lou Williams signing before this season they signed Carlos Boozer the year before kind of another curious signing to people who thought they should tank because Boozer is a guy that I mean he clearly had seen better days that turned out to be probably the last season of his NBA career but he still could score it wasn't a guy that you really wanted to be giving money to if you were going to rebuild wasn't young didn't have potential they did it and 
it didn't even really help their win total that much, which probably was a good thing. They ended up getting D'Angelo Russell that following draft. But yeah, it's kind of a weird situation that the Lakers are in. And it is very sad for Kobe Bryant. Dirk Nowitzki, this won't be his last season. Tim Cato said that he has one more year on his contract, Nowitzki, and he fully intends on playing it out at the very least. So even if the Mavericks don't make the playoffs, we'd like to think that Nowitzki will be in the playoffs next year. But yeah, hopefully Dallas makes the playoffs because they're on the cusp. Yeah, in addition to that Boozer signing you talked about, they also in recent years made the pickups of guys like Brandon Bass or Roy Hibbert. So at least in their free agent moves or front office signings, they always have to look like they are making an effort, especially for an organization as iconic as the Lakers, I think, with their history. But back to the Mavericks who this segment is actually about. We were talking about Wesley Matthews earlier, how he's dealt with his injury this season. What do you expect for the future of this game if he's ever going to get back to the level he was before the injury? I think it's interesting. There are definitely concerns. I like that Tim Cato is optimistic. Matthews is at an interesting stage of his career, an important stage. He's 29. He'll be 30 by the time the next season starts. And if this year is any indication, his game has seen better days. But I don't think that's completely fair to make that assessment because he had that ruptured Achilles, according to most accounts. The Achilles is fine. It's just that he needs to get his conditioning up. He needs to get his legs under him, get that consistent shot back. If you look at his career, his three-pointer has been so consistent, one of the most consistent of any player that's currently active in the NBA. He was always around 39%, 40%, 38% as a rookie was his lowest before this season. Now he's at 35.7% from three-point range and below 39% from the field, clearly the worst of his career. His minutes are now back where they've been, but it's an issue of getting his legs under him and and getting that consistency. It's good to hear that he is confident, but his confidence to the media is a very different thing than than his confidence with his shot. And I think that anyone who's played the game, even, even novices like us, know that you just need to be confident when you shoot to make the shot. And if the confidence is out the door, then it's hard to get your shot to be falling. I mean, it had to have been a a trying time. It's still a trying time, I'm sure, for him because he's used to playing at a certain level and he's not there right now. But I think there's still plenty of time for him to turn it around. I think next season will be the best indicator because after that, there's less hope that he'll turn it around if his shot's still not back. But You look how consistent he is year in and year out with his jump shot. I'd be pretty surprised if he's not hitting threes again like he was. With Wes Matthews, after his injury last season, a lot of experts were expecting him to return maybe in late December or even January, but he started the season for the Mavs, so it was a little bit earlier than a lot of people expected, and that was due to his hard work and his good recovery from that injury, but 
as a result, he missed out on a full offseason of conditioning or getting shots up. The typical things that NBA players, especially guards, work on in the offseason. So as you said, I agree that the true indicator is how he's going to perform next season. And as the franchise moves forward, it seems like they're throwing in their chips with Chandler Parsons and Wes Matthews as the core. Parsons has a player option this offseason, which he's expected to decline, but the Mavericks are going to do whatever they can to try to keep him. What do you think about that dynamic duo moving forward for the Mavericks, Aaron? It's an intriguing duo. The franchise clearly has put a lot into this happening. They've invested a lot. And when they decided to take a flyer on Wesley Matthews, they knew about the injury, obviously. In fact, as we mentioned in the interview episode, the injury was incurred against the Mavericks when Matthews was a member of the Blazers. But They saw a lot of great things in Wesley Matthews. And the same with Chandler Parsons when he was on the other another Texas team in Houston earlier in his career. And so they really like these guys. They think that they both move well, that they're both versatile players. They create a a lot of uh, lineup possibilities for a creative and innovative coach in Rick Carlisle. So it seems to be a good fit. They really like Wesley Matthews as a defender and Tim Cato attested to it, even with the ruptured Achilles that that he's um, recovering from this season. He's just been a great defender and his mobility is an asset. It's very important to be that strong perimeter defender, that three and D guy. So he's brought the D, he needs to bring the three, but Chandler Parsons keeps getting injured also. So I think that The biggest question mark with these two guys is if they can be on the court together, not if their games can coexist. We've seen that they work well together, and they really haven't even spent a ton of time together. So if they're able to stay healthy, if Parson resigns, and there's some continuity there, and they're both healthy, then I think that it'll be exciting for the franchise to move forward with those two after Nowitzki and then Darren Williams are both gone. As you said, both of them have strong three-point shots. They're both able to lend their variety of skill sets to Rick Carlisle being very versatile with lineups. Chandler Parsons this season has excelled at being the small ball four because he has a lot of size with the quickness and mobility of a three. Both of these guys are not typically who you would think of as being future superstars. Chandler Parsons was drafted in the second round. Wes Matthews actually went undrafted coming into the NBA, but they've put in the work. They've developed their games a lot from when they came in, and really their skill sets are very tailored to the direction that the NBA is going. So it's exciting to see where that franchise will take them going forward and if they can carry it to future success. And that'll wrap up our Mavericks talk. Thanks again to Tim Cato for coming on earlier this week. And thanks again to Jared Wade for talking about the Pacers last week. Be sure to catch both of those episodes if you haven't already. And next week, we have the Bucks and the Nets coming up as the regular season is winding down and we continue counting down the rest of the teams in the league. Hope you enjoy them and see you next week.